Okay, so one time a rabbi, a priest, and a minister were golfing together. Um, and the group ahead of them was going very, very slow and holding up their game. So finally they asked the groundskeeper, what, what's going on? Why is the group in front of us moving so slowly? So the groundskeeper said, oh, don't you know who they are? The rabbi, the priest, and the minister, they said, no, we don't know. He said, they're heroes. Those are uh, firemen who uh, are retired now because they were injured on the job. They actually rescued children from a burning orphanage. And the smoke burnt their eyes and they became uh, blind. And we allow them to come golf. They, they used to golf and now they golf, but they're, they're blind from the smoke in their eyes. And that's why it takes them so long. So the priest said, that's so moving. The minister says, I'm going to write a sermon about this. The rabbi says, why can't they golf at night? <laughs> okay, you got it. Anyways, why do I, do I tell such jokes? Okay, anyways, this week's Parsha, Parsha's Toldes, everything is in Torah. It says, Vayihi kizokin Yitzchak. And it was when Yitzchak, Isaac, became old. This is right before the blessings to Yankiv and Esav, Jacob and Esau. Vatichano Einov. And his eyes became dim. Meirois from seeing. Now Rashi addresses the question, why were Yitzchak's eyes dim? Why couldn't he see well? Why was he blind? Rashi gives three interpretations. The first one of which is, Ba'ashanon shel elu, through the smoke of those, meaning the wives of Esav, Shohoyu ma'ashnois umaktirois la'avedazora. They used to raise smoke and light incense to foreign gods. So the smoke of the idolatrous incense damaged Yitzchak's eyes, and that's why he went blind. Now, Rashi gives two other interpretations. Another is that uh, at the time of the Akedah, the tears of the angels dimmed his eyes. Another is that really it was just a divine intervention. Hashem made him go blind in order that he should be able to be fooled and give the blessing to the other son. But let's, let's focus on the first pshat in Rashi. That Yitzchak went blind because of the idolatrous incense, the smoke from the idolatrous incense. Simple question, I mean, th th this is pshat, Rashi is giving the simple concrete meaning. And I understand there's something lacking in each interpretation, which is why he gives three interpretations. Nevertheless, each one of them has to be grounded in literal meaning. It's not simply uh, you know, homiletical. In other contexts, sometimes we, we give interpretations that don't have to be so grounded in the literal concrete meaning, but, but Rashi is for the simple meaning of every verse. So simple question about Yitzchak going blind from the smoke of the idolatrous incense. I have a very simple question. Asaph's wives, wives. wives were lighting smoke to idols. Yeah, making you know, incense to idols. Simple question. Simple question. You know what the simple question I have is? 
if the fumes, the smoke, were really so noxious as to damage Yitzchak's eyes, how can we only hear about Yitzchak being damaged from it? What, what, it, why, what, why did it, first of all, it should have damaged Esau's wives. They were right there. They were lighting it. It was right in their face. But it didn't damage anybody. Only Yitzchak. So I want to tell you a story. The story is about one of the Talmidei Abal Shemtev, who was then later a Talmud of the Mezritche Magid, the great Nachum Chernobyl. The story is like this. Nachum Chernobyl was once sitting at his desk, learning, and he had an attendant. And he asked the attendant to bring him a drink of milk. The attendant came while Reb Nachum was learning, and he put the glass of milk on the table. And some time went by, and Reb Nachum said to the attendant, when are you, uh, not to bother you, but when are you bringing the glass of milk? The attendant said, I brought the Rebbe his glass of milk a long time ago. And Rebbe Nachum said, I didn't see it. So uh, he looked, didn't see the, the milk. The attendant thought, this is very strange. He took the milk away. And as he was leaving, somebody said, don't give the Rebbe the milk. It's not Chal of Yisrael. It wasn't milked with a Jew watching. The, the law is that a Jew has to supervise, has to watch the milking in order for it to be what we call Chal Yisrael. And the wording, which is pertinent to the punchline of this story, is Chal of milk that a non-Jew milked v'Yisrael v'ein Yisrael re'ehu. And a Yisrael, a Jew, did not see it. That's how it's called in Mishnah and in Shulchan Aruch. And a Jew did not see it, meaning see, observe the milking process. So the attendant came back in and he said, Rebbe, the milk wasn't Chal of Yisrael. And Reb Nachum said, oh, well that makes perfect sense then. Because milk that a Jew didn't see, a Jew didn't see. Right? Meaning the, 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 the Shulchan Aruch says a Jew didn't see it. It's describing a fact, a Metzias, that a Jew did not observe the, the milking. He interpreted it like a Jew won't see this milk. It's not on his radar. It doesn't register. It's not, it wasn't for him, so he didn't see it. This was the level of the holy Reb Nachum Chernobyler. It wasn't that he saw something that he couldn't have and he grappled with it. If he couldn't have it, he didn't see it. Okay. So now I want to tell you another story. And I'm not going to lend any interpretation to this story. I'm just going to tell you the story. This story I told you with an interpretation because when the Rebbe told the story, the story was given with an interpretation. In other words, the reason that Reb Nachum didn't see the milk is attributed to the fact that he simply did not see anything that wasn't fitting for a Jew. Now I'm going to tell you a story and I'm not going to give an interpretation. Why? Because I don't have that authority. I'm just telling a story. Okay? It's just a story. You can do with it whatever you want. It's a story about a famous Jew, a uh, 
think he won the Nobel Prize for, for literature. But he wasn't a, an author, actually interesting, a songwriter who, who won the Nobel Prize for literature. You know who that is? A Jew? Dylan? Bob Dylan. Very good. Bob Dylan wrote uh, lyrics that have been lauded by uh, those who uh, study and observe American culture. He's considered a cultural icon. And uh, he's Jewish. And the fact of the matter is that he came to 770, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Fabrengens, on several occasions. And I want to tell you a story about when he came to the Rebbe. There was one Fabrengen, Bob Dylan, came to the Fabrengen. And, uh, oh, how do I know the story, by the way? I know the story from Rabbi Manus Friedman, who was then of Minnesota, and that's how he knew Bob Dylan, because Bob Dylan originally is from Minnesota. And I asked Reb Manus the story, and he told me exactly how it happened. At the Fabrengen, during the Nigunim, during the musical interludes, the Rebbe would uh, say l'chaim to everyone present. Usually you'd lift your little cup of wine and wait, and the Rebbe would, one, not just, you know, one, like, like, the Rebbe had his own order, how he would notice people and acknowledge them. And the Rebbe would give a nod of the head, or he would motion, like, to drink. And he would give each person that eye contact in that moment where they knew the Rebbe is registering their presence there in the crowd. So Bob Dylan's holding his cup, and he's waiting for the Rebbe to acknowledge him and to say l'chaim. Bob Dylan says, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. At one point, the Rebbe looks to the guy right next to him on the right, and clearly he sees this guy have his moment. Then a little bit later, the Rebbe looks at the guy right there on Bob Dylan's left, and he has his moment. And Dylan is waiting and waiting and waiting, but it never happens. It never happens that the Rebbe would look at him, acknowledge him, and say l'chaim. Very strange. After the Fabrengen, Bob Dylan is walking down the street. Reb Manas says he was like half in tears. He was broken. And he says, this is the third Fabrengen I'm by the Rebbe. I'm holding my cup to the Rebbe. And he won't acknowledge me. He won't say l'chaim to me. It's interesting. It was Bob Dylan who said um, his famous lyrics, how does it feel to be on your own with no direction home like a complete unknown? A complete unknown. He's standing there at the Fabrengen. The Rebbe's acknowledging every single neshama. He's getting nothing. He was heartbroken. Now, I want to tell you, at the exact same time as Bob Dylan's having his conversation with Rabbi Friedman, the Rebbe came out of the Fabrengen. The Rebbe went to his room, and as he was entering his room, he was speaking to the Mazkiris, to the Secretariat, and he mentioned to Rabbi Krinsky, as Gvendor, der Zinger, Dylan, is Gvendor, he was here. The Rebbe was aware that a famous singer, who was very influential, <coughs> had a lot of influence on a lot of people, was present at the Fabrengen. He'd been told. Now the Rebbe's asking, he was here, he was here? Very strange. So Rabbi Krinsky told Rabbi Friedman, you know, the Rebbe was asking, was Dylan even here? So Rabbi Friedman says, you know, that's very strange. He says, I don't know if there's any connection, but, you know, for a while I've been wanting to say something to, to Dylan, and I haven't really felt comfortable. 
But you see, there was an issue. At one point, um, I think it was in the 70s, uh, Bob Dylan actually, he converted to Christianity and was baptized and practiced that religion uh, for a few years. And then he, he left that, he left that, and he was returning to uh, Yiddishkeit. The thing is, um, if somebody, God forbid, a Jew converts to another religion, God forbid, um, it's not so simple. It's a, it's a serious, serious transgression. And it's the only transgression, actually, for which there's something in halacha called the Tvilas Bal uh, an immersion in a mikvah. And it's similar to, and it has similar stringency to the Tvila, to the immersion that a, that a Ger Tzedek, that a convert undergoes to become Jewish. Meaning it's an actual immersion in a kosher mikvah with a bezdin, with a rabbinic tri uh, tribunal. And the person has to again accept upon themselves the yoke of mitzvahs. And the tvila is a sort of a renunciation of that previous life and contact. So um, Rabbi Friedman said to, uh, said to Dylan, he says, you know, a number of years ago, you'd been involved in Christianity, Chumon um, There's something called Tvilas Balchuvi. Explained it to him. He says, "You should do it." So they made a bezdin in Crown Heights. And he went to a mikvah, and he did the he did the ritual. Next day, it comes to seven seventy, and he was waiting for the Rebbe to come, Davin Mincha. And he was standing among the crowd of people. And the Rebbe walked in quickly. The Rebbe was always walking quickly. The Rebbe was born on an Erev Shabbos. And the Rebbe said, Erev Shabbos, everyone's moving quickly. So since I was born on an Erev Shabbos, I'm always moving quickly. The Rebbe was always moving quickly. Even, even in his 80s, his 90s, the Rebbe was moving quickly. So the Rebbe came out to go to Mincha. And the Rebbe's walking quickly. And he's walking past the people very quickly. Eyes forward, directed toward you know, the end of the the path, and all of a sudden, as I was walking quickly by the crowd, the Rebbe stops, turns, looks right at Bob Dylan, gives him a big smile and a gesture with the hand, and continues walking. And at that moment, Bob Dylan was flying high. He said, finally, he got his acknowledgement from the Rebbe. Okay, like I said, <clears throat> I'm not offering any interpretations. I'm not saying what happened. I'm just telling you the story as it transpired, and you could figure out or decide for yourself what was actually going on. At any rate, now we can answer our question about Yitzchak. Why was Yitzchak uniquely affected by the smoke of the incense of idolatry of Esau's wives? It wasn't that it was so noxious that, physically speaking, that it damaged everybody. It was that Yitzchak was already on a level where he didn't see evil. If it was negative, he didn't see it. And since it was all around, so he became blind, effectively. He wasn't able to see anything. And that's why later on, yes, in the next Parsha, when, in Parsha's Vayetze, when Yankiv has his dream, and it says, Hashem that Hashem, 
was standing over Yankiv, Vayemer, and Hashem says to Yankiv, Ani Hashem, I am the Lord, Elekei Avram Avicha Elekei Yitzchok, the God of Avram, your father, meaning grandfather, and the God of Yitzchok. And Rashi right there on that Pasuk says, Rashi has to answer, hold on a second, I thought the term Elekei so-and-so, the God of so-and-so, was only used for tzaddikim after their passing. That's what Rashi says. Although we have not found anywhere else in Scripture, that Hashem connects His name to a particular tzaddik, while that tzaddik is still alive, to say God of so-and-so in their lifetime, why not? Mishum Shinema, because it says it's a Pasuk from Eo, from Job. He doesn't believe even in his holy ones, meaning as long as someone is alive, even if he's holy, he still has free choice. So he may choose the wrong path, right? Nevertheless, Khan here in this instance, Yichud Shmael Yitzchok, Hashem does attach his name to Yitzchok. Why? And Rashi gives a few reasons. Lafi Shekohu Einov, because his eyes became dim. Vekolo Babayas, and he was locked up in the house. Varehu kemes, he was if he, he was already dead. Vietzahara posok mimenu, and his Yetzahara already left him. Those are actually all one thing. What does it mean? His eyes were dimmed, he was stuck in the house. He was if he was already dead, his Yetzahara left him. It meant that although everyone else, while they're alive, they still have free choice to sin because they see the temptation in front of them. Yitzchak, he was like someone who already graduated from that. He didn't see the negativity. It wasn't that he had to struggle with the right choice. Negativity simply wasn't an option. It wasn't on his radar. Now, everything we learn, we try to have a practical application. How are we going to have a practical application from lofty, I mean, this is absurdly lofty stuff. I mean, what's, how does this apply to us? So I want to tell you one more story. And we can try to take this, take this home. This is the, uh, what we call the doggy bag. You know, Jews, they go to a restaurant, they ask, they ask for a doggy bag. They don't have a dog, but they ask for a doggy bag, right? Who are they fooling? At any rate, okay. So here, here's, here's the take home. 1967, springtime, on the, uh, the eve of the Six-Day War, tensions were running extremely high in the Holy Land. And uh, the Rebbe announced the Mivza Tefillin, the Tefillin campaign, that by putting on Tefillin, it will strengthen the security of Jews everywhere, particularly in the Holy Land. I heard this story from a chassid who was a teenager at that time. He was about 15, 16 years old. And uh, growing up in Kfar Chabad, which is a Chabad village outside of Tel Aviv. And uh, when the Rebbe said, put on Tefillin with, uh, with as many Jewish men as you can, in order to strengthen Jewish security in the world, he took his tefillin and he went to Tel Aviv and he stood on a street corner and he said, because the tensions of the war ramping up were so thick, he said he literally had a line around the block, like around the corner. He had one after another. These were men without yarmulkes, completely not religious, but everyone was looking for something and they saw this 
yeshiva bacher, 16-year-old kid, standing there with his tefillin saying, who wants to put on tefillin? And he literally had a line around the block. He said, for hours, because as soon as one guy would get out of line, we finish wrapping him, another, another guy would get in line. So he says he's going for hours. Going for three hours, tefillin after tefillin after tefillin. He said he must have put on thousands of tefillin that day. At one point, after a few hours, a religious Jew comes by. And he says to him, Bacha, what are you doing? He says, I'm putting on tefillin. The, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, what's the problem with that? He says, no, no, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with where you're doing it. He says, well, street corner, where else should I find people? He says, Bacha, you don't see where you're standing? Look, look, you see that billboard? And he points up, it's Tel Aviv. There's a billboard, an advertisement, and it's very not modest. He says, you can't stand on a street corner in front of that billboard with that picture putting on tefillin. The Bacha says, you're right. And he calls out, everybody, we're moving, we're going, to the other, we're going to the other corner. And the whole line of hundreds of guys, they get, out of, they get uh, out of line and they all reassemble on the other corner. And as he's leaving, he says to the guy, he says, by the way, I want you to know something. You're 100% right, and that's why I'm moving. But I want to know one thing. I'm standing here three hours. I didn't see that billboard. You just walked up two minutes ago. <laughs> Can you imagine a 16-year-old boy? A 16-year-old boy. Everyone knows what that means. Shouldn't see an immodest picture. But that's the point. Maybe we're not on the level of Yitzchak, not seeing the smoke, or Nachum Chernobyl, or not seeing the milk, or the Lubavitcher Rebbe, not seeing Bob Dylan until he did his tshuva. But each and every one of us, if we're farnumen, if we're preoccupied with good things, when you're in that zone of doing good things and looking for good things, especially looking how to help another Jew, you don't see evil. So we should all be occupied in good stuff and only see good things.